welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Sean Duffy, co-founder and CEO of Omada. Omada is a company focused on revolutionizing care of chronic disease, and Sean is a longtime devotee of healthcare and technology, working in other fields before healthcare, and has been a healthcare innovation writer and editor as well. Over the past decade plus, Omada has been a leader in virtual care, building care programs that have a high level of stickiness, as we might say. Uh, the company has gained broad recognition for evidence-based solutions. Sean, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. David, thank you for having me, and wonderful to be here. So I wonder if you could give a thumbnail intro to Omada Health and where you've been over the last dozen or so years. Sure. Yeah. yeah hi, everybody. I'm, so I'm Sean Duffy, co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. Uh, we're a virtual care company. We um, support uh, our members with prediabetes, uh, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal care. Uh, and, and all of those are those care areas where really clinical outcomes uh, and value is driven in the in-between visit space. When I'm out there speaking on behalf of Omada, I tend to call ourselves the twin visit provider, focusing on uh, really that proactive uh, longitudinal care um, uh, that really requires kind of day-to-day -to -day support versus visit-by-visit uh, -visit support. Great. And what I'm really interested in exploring with you, Sean, is the evolution from 2010, 2011, sure. where if you said digital health, you'd get a blank stare more often than not. That is true. Versus, versus today where that's, even if someone doesn't know exactly what you mean, people will smile and nod at least. And people do know what you're talking about. And people are actually paying you for this stuff. So I wonder if you could talk about that journey a little bit. How do you get the nerve to to put a stake in the ground and say, yeah, this is what we're going to do. Sure. There, there is a little bit of uh, ignorance is bliss. Uh, I'd worked in technology, worked at Google for a couple of years, um, went to medical school, was enrolled in an MD, MBA program at Harvard, but you know, hadn't done the MBA side. And I ended up founding Omada on that program just against the kind of the, the status of digital health at that moment in time. I'm being purier, purier comments. It was very early. And I just had this funny recurring reflection in that when I'd be chatting with my tech friends on the power of these new things called Fitbits and step trackers, I'd get very different perception and answers than, I, than, I, than with my medical school classmates. Um, and so on one hand, digital had a lot of promise. On the other hand, it was clear that it had to uh, really earn the trust of the healthcare world. And therein laid the opportunity for Mata to just really think through what are the care areas where a digital approach could just not be incrementally better than existing standard of care, but transformationally better? And how might you create amazing digital experiences, but blend it uh, you know, with the best of evidence-based medicine, take the long road of pursuing peer-reviewed publications, dealing with all the you know, complex regulatory 
requirements in healthcare and really earn the right to operate within the existing systems. That led to the vision. We, we very quickly got interested in metabolic disease, pre-diabetes or advanced weight, where you're seeing some metabolic challenges emerge. Later expanded to diabetes, to hypertension, to MSK. All of these are care areas where the existing healthcare system tends to put out an ask to patients, which is come into my center, come into my waiting room, come to my diabetes education, my physical therapy clinic. But that's a tough ask persistently. So you lose a lot of people um, and to get outcomes there, you need to be super proactive. So we recognized that very early on uh, and just decided to, uh, to give it a go. And it was, for your comments, it was very early. Omada, to be honest, was a little bit disorienting to the market when we first uh, launched the company, which uh, turned out to be a, a neat chance to push innovation forward and a neat chance to paint a vision of what could be. Where do you think it was most disorienting or in, in which, among which audience is the question? Among end users, patients, customers, or among clinicians, or among the folks who need to ultimately pay the bill for these services? The funny, this is a statement on our healthcare system, but it was least disorienting at the level of the patient and clinician. It's when I described a vision for how care could and should be in something like diabetes, yeah, of course. That definitely, that sounds way better, but there are real barriers in just the kind of foundations that have been laid in the enterprise healthcare system we had to punch through. So the disorientation was always about how to fit in a unique uh, tech meets services capability within the existing, uh, I would say, laws of physics of enterprise healthcare. And just some early stories, we'd be talking with health plans and share that we're a HIPAA covered entity and, you know, our preference would be to contract with their with their, under their provider paper and their network team and you get a pause on the call and they'd be like, but where specifically are your clinics again? And you'd be like, well, you don't have to have a physical office to deliver care. And, and that, now thankfully that's the world's opened its mind a little bit. I think thanks to companies like, that used to be very confusing five, 10 years ago. So we did have to really work to help people imagine that an alternative world where you didn't have to have a physical address to deliver care. So that's a, perhaps a, an issue from the provider side. And then I guess from the payer side, or do you deal directly with payers or do you get paid by providers or a little bit of both or? So, so yeah, payer and employer, though increasingly with risk bearing providers as well. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, that kind of question was more on the payer side because and it's not even his fault here. It's just, we have multiple decades of operational foundations, regulatory foundations, ways of doing things that have all been laid in the healthcare system. So when you're coming in and saying, look, we're like the things you're used to, but we're different, you do have work to do. And what it requires is some of those innovative health plans and, and employers that they're willing to lock arms with you and, and figure out how to fit what you have within the existing system, because you can't just wave a magic wand and have all these, again, multiple generations of foundations kind of white. You have to find a way to plug in and get a big creator and, and really MacGyver it. But within some sort of pre-existing framework, at right. least. So you mentioned value-based care, Sean, and I'm wondering if you could elaborate on how that becomes a foothold for you in some way. Yeah, we have a very unique, um, you know, pricing. The first thing is we don't charge any PEPM or PM, you know, and our model was one of the first to really pursue that strategy. I had um, a Mercer consultant a couple of years back be like, hey, I killed the PEPM, which 
statement. But so we just, we charge on when we're helping someone, which sounds so obvious, but that was the first innovation. The second was we have unique um, monthly membership fee that includes our whole scope of services. So Medicare Advantage is a good proxy where you're, you, you get that fee and then, but you can render the care how you want. You're not shackled with, oh my gosh, I have to bill on synchronous time and do that call and force the patient to do this. You can message, you can do live. It allows a lot of operating flexibility. It includes our devices and care teams and supplies and technologies. And then if someone stops using it, we stop charging. So it's really a, the, the value is aligned with the, the person. And then we found employers really like to do that. And the real thing that we had to push through was find ways to deliver that billing model on fee-for-service claims infrastructure. Because per my comment, you have to fit within the existing systems. Sure. We, we took our trials to the AMA and we had them issue we got them to issue the first ever digital specific T code, which was a cat free code and allows us to kind of bill. And then we bill on that value-based billing model through fee-for-service claims infrastructure, which to my knowledge, I think is the largest example of a value-based billing model done on fee-for-service claims infrastructure within the U.S. Um, terrific. And again, so that's a, a periodic fee charge for each person who's actually using the service. That's correct. Exactly. And the scope of what you're offering maybe has changed over time. Uh, it sounds like you're, you've described a couple of different areas of focus uh, in terms of disease states. But are there, has there been an evolution over time in the services being offered? Yeah, there has. So we got our start in, you know, in pre-diabetes weight um, and then expanded to diabetes, to hypertension. Uh, to musculoskeletal care. And yeah, I call our strategy selective, Brett, because you do need to be very cautious when you expand because it's, a, it's not for the, the faint of heart. You really need to make sure that you're in a position to do a great job in any new condition area. But, but we did get a lot of customer asks. They liked working with Amada and they said, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about that? And then clinically, it was these were just obvious areas because there's so much extraordinary comorbidity between these care areas. And then there's also... Uh, the rubric relative to uh, really needing to be great at longitudinal proactive support in those care areas, which uh, that's what we do. That's why we, you know, deserve to exist in the world. So that led to the suite of care services. A lot of commonalities, but a lot of differences too. And you have to, you know, stack up against those and, and build them, you know, technology against those. So the opportunity is to continue to build on that, to grow out and up, so to speak. Also along the way, I know that you've, you mentioned the reimbursement as breakthrough, but you've also, as I understand it, attained different sorts of certifications and recognitions that are maybe not typical for a digital health kind of company. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And we really, hopefully this is less the case now, but we've really always from day one viewed digital health as the underdog. And in order to earn the right to be a proper part of the fabric of U.S. healthcare. You have to uh, take the long road and rest on clinical foundations, have a commitment to quality. Two examples of that are pioneering um, achievements for Amata. I mean, we were the first and remain the only in metabolic to have an NCQA certification. Um, uh, we just announced, in fact, uh, this week that we're the first and only um, to attain URAC uh, certification for MSK care. Um, and, you know, both of those achievements, you know, we think represent to the market that Omada, you know, again, is already through an accreditation, 
seen to be delivering, you know, extraordinarily high quality care, but also has a commitment to operate with high clinical integrity and be a proper partner to the U.S. healthcare system. Terrific. And the staffing that supports that is what, what sort of staffing? Is there a live component to this or is this all uh, virtual? Depending on the care area, it's going to mix. We've tended to see that patients tend to prefer asynchronous, but there's some where you just absolutely need live. So MSK is a good one where, you know, it starts with a live video consult with a licensed PT and they can provide a diagnosis and then they can set up a care plan. Then you can do asynchronous messaging or re-engage live periodically as needed. Um, uh, and that's what we love about the flexibility of our, our, build, our business model in that you really can adapt how you use your care team's time relative to the specific need at hand, which unfortunately is the opposite of how our existing healthcare system is structured. If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Sean Duffy, co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. Sean, we've been talking a lot about the, the virtues of virtual, and I wonder if you could comment on the evolution from what I'll call the before times to the pandemic years and as we're moving from the pandemic years into what I'll call the next normal uh, or whatever this week's next normal looks like. Yeah. How has that experience been felt by your company and by the folks who you interact with? Yeah, I think there's some real, you know, silver linings to COVID and that required a lot of infrastructure change to support care from afar. So that's good. We, per, per the prior dialogue on us getting people scratching their head when we said we wanted to contract as a, in their network as a virtual care provider and us not having clinics, I think that's gone away in large part, which I think it's good. But there's a funny kind of reality and challenge in that the vast majority of what was done during COVID just enabled people, clinicians to bill for synchronous time on Zoom or phone. That's great. That's needed. But really, I think the next chapter is making sure that it doesn't stop there and thinking through what is the future of virtual care? What should the traditional, more traditionally in-person systems be doing that constitutes as virtual? How might we enable different care models for things like the disease areas where we serve? And that to me is a neat chapter. And then in parallel, the digital health landscape has evolved enormously and, you know, gobs of capital has gone into the space. Um, you have companies like Omada that have, uh, you know, scaled quite well. And so I think the, the next horizon, in my view, and this is where we're dedicating a lot of time and energy, is uh, leveraging solutions like Omada to complement the existing primary care ecosystem, complement the patient's medical home, not sit alongside without care in context, because you'll always need in-person care. And you've got to remove moles and do biopsies. And there's a uh, human bodies are atoms. And so there's going to have to be a physical touch here. So a big part of our strategy now is working really to bring our solution set in into the medical home to complement the existing care ecosystem and, and serve as an adjunct uh, uh, to primary care. So, so we view that as really the, the next horizon. We're excited to, to um, we've already announced some kind of neat things there. For instance, in Q1, we announced an exciting uh, partnership with Intermount where uh, an intermount clinician can say, look, I'm not going anywhere, but between now and when I see you next, I'm going to introduce you to uh, our diabetes care partner, Omada, and they're going to support you um, really between our visits here. So I think you'll, you'll see more of that from us and you'll see more of that from the space uh, writ large. 
Great. Uh, yeah, that's an exciting opportunity that's really made more palatable by the experience we've lived through the past few years. Uh, and I guess the challenge is to think about how, what are the different things? You're speaking about it in terms of how can we do things virtually differently from what clinicians have done virtually during the height of the pandemic. But I guess to take it one step further is the question of what are all the things that we could do digitally or virtually? And even things that we haven't thought about before. How do we take it one step further? And exactly. yep, to the extent there are frameworks, as you, as you keep pointing out, you need to do it within a framework. So there are frameworks for remote care, remote monitoring, and care provision and reimbursement for that. But maybe there's a new category out there. Maybe there's a new kind of service that can be added in that can piggyback on what you're already building. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a rationalization that's happening right now. COVID introduced a lot of attention to the space. And like any innovation curve, sometimes it gets a little over-exuberant relative to what can be done digital and what can't be. So I think the, I think kind of the balance of tomorrow is going to be really that, all right, what can and should be virtual care? What needs to be at home? What needs to be in person and outpatient or hospital-based settings? That to me, I think it is a, the big piece of the future. Another thing that has been happening a lot lately, there's been, as we're speaking today, there's been a lot of talk about GLP-1s and the use of GLP-1s in the management of diabetes, perhaps pre-diabetes, and broader use in weight management and, and also possibly the exacerbation of supply chain Mm -hmm. issues around these drugs because of their use for more and more purposes, including some off-label uses. Uh, I'm wondering if you've seen the development of the use cases for these drugs grow over time. Are folks involved in your, in using your platform, using them more? Or has this been steady state? And what do you see as a future there? For starters, these really are breakthrough medicines. They're not new. We've been right. our members on GLPs and diabetes for a long time. So the, the real attention relative to kind of the zeitgeist has been around their impact and weight. And you've got two, the, two of these GLPs that are approved for, they have got FDA indication for weight loss specifically, and then likely one more coming this year. And but that being said, there is a lot of off-label scripts for patients who want to lose weight. And so there are, this brings forward an enormous amount of both uh, clinical and economic complexity because uh, the cost profile of these meds is quite extraordinary. It's a rule of thumb is about $1,000 a month. And that's a lot for the system to bear. Plus, all the evidence tends to show two, two things that create challenges. The, the first is that the vast majority of people who you know, want to try a GLP are really hoping that it's a temporary thing that they use the medicine, get their weight down to a certain point and stop. Yet the clinical literature shows that approach doesn't tend to work. You regain weight pretty quickly after discontinuation. There's a lot of strategic questions on how to use these. Contrary to what you may see in the headlines, et cetera, these really aren't going to be a silver bullet. That's for point of view, but they're an amazing tool in the toolkit. Um, where we've announced a whole host of product capabilities over the course of this year is bringing some of our GLP expertise from diabetes down to prevention, down to weight, um, introducing new community layers, content layers, 
support systems around our patients on GLPs and members on GLPs, training our care teams, the, the, the works. And then what we're finding is the average employer or plan, they may have select coverage for weight in GLP, but they're really worried about the, the maximizing the potential to yield long-term outcomes. And so we're of the belief that anytime someone's on a GLP, you really should complement with a proactive lifestyle intervention. Because if you don't, the, the evidence is quite clear what happens to give that person the best shot. If kind of their vision is to not be on the bed forever, the best shot of enabling that outcome for them, you really have to adopt new changes in your life. And GLPs do a great job at making you feel less hungry, suppressing appetite. That handles quantity of food, but it doesn't do anything relative to quality. If your eating habits are exactly the same, but you're eating less of that, the moment that you stop the GLP, you're going to just eat the same. It's very important to just have honest conversations with people starting that, that don't want it to be a lifelong thing um, and say, all right, well, let's enable this together here. It's going to require some work, some change, some partnership. Um, and let's think through some of the, using this as an opportunity to get some positive behavioral inertia and support kind of new habits, some new things that you can fit into your life effectively to make this change that you're going to experience at the highest likelihood of persistence. And clearly you have the platform to enable that. And I imagine you'll be adding content services, et cetera. Yeah, we've already launched it. We're getting a lot of positive market feedback on it. Sean, as we're wrapping up our our time, I, I wanted to ask you one last question, which is if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what's one thing in healthcare that you would hope or maybe expect to find has changed drastically? I really think if I could wave a magic wand, we'd find a way to incorporate billing for asynchronous care. We've got this huge challenge as a healthcare system that all of our billing infrastructure is designed to pay for units of time for clinicians that are synchronous. And that's a big issue because consumer preference is not to only engage in a synchronous fashion. It's to message, it's to chat, it's to text. So the healthcare system that doesn't meet consumer preferences on communication engagement is not going to be one that best serves the country. And it's creating a huge labor challenge in that, you know, the average primary clinician, their day may be synchronous visits either in person or virtually with patients, but their night is trying to burn down their MyCharts inbox and creating enormous burnout. So we really need to find ways to incorporate asynchronous reimbursement alongside synchronous in the healthcare system if we're going to get to a, a, a better care experience that meets consumer preferences. And I hear you saying that it's not just about consumer preference, it's about clinician burnout as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, you, it's a very rough practice environment right now. I mean, we're at record burnout. You have droves of clinicians leaving the profession. It's a, it's a really tough practice environment because you're not being paid against, you know, how your patients want to interact, um, uh, you know, which is always a huge challenge. I know I, I saw one, one figure a few months back. I think it was if every PCP did everything that what they were supposed to do with every patient, it would just take them 27 hours a day. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a, you know, huge labor shortage um, that we're all grappling with right now. So that's a very, um, that's a, a real acute challenge. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for telling us about the work that you're doing to address that issue in our system and others. Yeah, my pleasure, David. Yeah, thank you for having me on. 
You have been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time.